Good morning, and thanks for joining us. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute. Uh, today we're here to talk about the budget. Just to let you know, the, the forum is going to proceed a little bit differently than usual. As you can see, Congressman Ryan is not here quite yet. It's probably one of the busiest weeks he has on the Hill all year. Uh, he will be dropping by to give some comments, but we're going to go ahead and get started with our program, uh, with our Cato speakers, and let him jump in when he arrives. Uh, before I turn things over to our first speaker, I just wanted to uh, shamelessly plug the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. Uh, this is a great resource to keep on your, de on your desk and uh, thumb through as you're familiarizing yourself with new issues. It covers pretty much all the issues you deal with here on Capitol Hill, ranging from the budget to taxes, social security, civil liberties, foreign policy, really run the gamut in terms of, uh, of policy issues and uh, gives you a great primer, uh, like I said, as you're familiar, familiarizing yourself with new issues. If you don't have a copy, uh, or if you have a copy but your, uh, your coworker seems to hog it all the time, just let me know. I'd be happy to get another one to you. Um, with that, our first speaker today is Chris Edwards. He is the Director of Tax Studies at the Cato Institute. He's also an expert on budget issues. Uh, his last book was called Downsizing the Federal Government. It was a, a pretty comprehensive guide on ways that the Congress could pare down the size of the federal government, giving even specific policy recommendations, specific programs that could be privatized or uh, just outright eliminated. Uh, his most recent book is Global Tax Revolution, which takes a look at tax competition, uh, especially on an international uh, scale. Uh, it's an excellent book, and if you're interested in getting a copy of that, uh, again, you can let me know after the forum. I'll be sure to get you one. With that, I'll go ahead and turn things over to Chris Edwards. Thanks a lot, Brandon, and thanks for uh, coming this morning when uh, I think uh, Congressman Ryan's supposed to be here at about a quarter or 20 after, and I will hand over the podium to him uh, when he comes, um, I'm going to talk about a uh, little bit about the overall spending and tax picture in the budget, then hand it over to Mike Tanner to talk uh, in more detail about health care. Uh, I'm going to talk about two things. First, I'm going to talk about spending, and then I'm going to talk about taxes. Uh, on spending, it's interesting to contrast uh, President Obama with President Bush. On the one hand, uh, he builds on uh, many different Bush spending precedents. On the other hand, he is, he is quite different uh, than President Bush in how he justifies his, uh, his uh, large spending in the budget. So as a result of both uh, the sp uh, spending increases under President Bush and President Obama, domestic spending now and in future years, even aside from all the stimulus and bailout money, uh, total domestic spending will be about one-third a larger share of the economy than under the last term of President Clinton. Government other than defense, is about one-third larger over the long term uh, than under President Clinton, the last Democratic president. President Obama, as I said, is building on many different Bush precedents, and I'll give you seven. Um, huge deficits. Uh, uh, both Bush and Obama put deficits at a very low priority in their, in their uh, budget policies. Keynesianism, President Obama is extending and building on President Bush's Keynesian uh, policies, which is uh, unfortunately helping to bankrupt the country. Destroying federalism, President Obama, like President Bush, is expanding the federal tentacles even further into state and local activities. Healthcare expansion. President Bush's major healthcare expansion, the prescription drug bill, is now costing federal taxpayers about $60 billion a year. President Obama has plans to uh, expand federal healthcare spending even more. 
new subsidy programs. President Bush enacted hundreds of new subsidy programs, as I'm going to be outlining in a study in a few weeks. Uh, President Obama has all kinds of new subsidy programs in his budget. Efficiency. Both President Bush and Obama focus on trying to make government programs work more efficiently rather than actually trying to eliminate them. And, and finally, both President Bush and President Obama are using sort of a ploy of putting tiny spending cuts in their budget and trying to uh, make them, market them as if the, these were major budget reforms. Both Bush and Obama, for example, included f small cuts to farm subsidies uh, in their budget, uh, sort of as a marketing ploy to signal that they were reformers when, in fact, they are not. So how, how uh, is Obama's spending plan much different than President Bush's strategy? What is different is the outrageous claims that President Obama is making uh, for the economic benefits of his spending. In Obama's press conference last week, uh, he said, uh, we need to increase spending on energy, education, uh, infrastructure spending, and many other things, quote, so that we won't grow the economy by 2%. If we don't, we won't grow the economy by 2.6%. We won't grow by 2.2%. We won't grow. And so what we've said is, let's make the investments that ensure that we meet our growth targets. That was President Obama uh, last week. So Obama's theory is that spending helps boost the economy. I think that's nonsense, and I'll give you five reasons why. Obama's spending will shift resources from the more productive private sector economy to the less productive public sector. Government already spends one-third of everything produced in this country, one-third of GDP. Spending on things like infrastructure and education are already at high levels. So one would assume that with government a, th a third of GDP that all the high-value uses of government funds would already be taken care of. And so Obama's increased spending will then only uh, go towards lower-valued uh, activities. Liberals assume that more federal spending is always better, but they completely ignore the Econ 101 lesson that there is always an optimal for spending. Uh, more is not always better, and that's one of the fundamental errors that the Obama economists make. And I think we're far over the optimal level of spending on just about most federal programs. Secondly, politicians have no way of finding the highest valued uses for resources because there's no price or profit signals in the public sector. They're really just shooting in the dark when they increase spending on activities. Uh, third, government spending often gets stuck in low-value uses, unlike the private sector where companies go bankrupt in normal times, they go out of business and resources are shifted to higher-value uses. The government has no such mechanism to improve efficiency. Fourth, uh, even if politicians could pick and choose the programs they fund efficiently, the reality is that the federal management in the, in the 15 cabinet agencies uh, is really horrible. Programs are often horribly managed. And finally, the taxes to increase federal spending on any program cause, create a lot of damage that the Obama economists completely ignore. So you've got uh, Obama economist Christina Romer going around saying that uh, there's a multiplier effect from federal spending, that if the federal government spends a dollar, the, uh, the uh, economy benefits a dollar fifty from it, the so-called multiplier effect. But what they completely ignore is that every dollar of taxes destroys at least a dollar fifty of private sector activity. 
So any kind of multiplier effect you may get is, is offset, in my view, by, by the uh, damage that, uh, that the additional tax uh, distortions create. All, so all five of those problems with, with federal spending, I think, are ignored under the Obama spending plan. Moving over to taxes, the thing that's really striking is that uh, implicit in just about uh, all the, the, the Obama policy areas is that spending affects the economy. Spending helps boost the economy and grow, grow the economy. But the taxes have absolutely no effect on the economy. Uh, this, is, this is sort of, uh, you see this throughout all of the Obama uh, tax plans. So, for example, uh, Obama's stimulus plan, uh, he, uh, they explicitly claimed that the stimulus plan would increase GDP growth uh, pretty rapidly over the next few years, but they essentially assume that, that all the big tax increases that are coming in 2011 have no effect on the economy. So there's this real asymmetrical view of, of how fiscal policy affects the economy. I mean, to give you one particular example, uh, in Obama's budget, he's got a whole bunch of new taxes on uh, domestic oil and gas production. Uh, but at the same time, Obama goes around uh, making the claim that he wants energy independence. So he's increasing taxes on domestic energy production, but he says he wants more energy independence. So he completely uh, seems to ignore the fact that his tax increases have uh, serious economic effects. Obama's tax hikes are about the same size sort of relative to the economy as, as President Clinton's big tax hike in, in 1993. Uh, but at least President Clinton had an economic theory about his tax hikes. Clinton's economic theory was that raising taxes will reduce deficits and thus reduce interest rates and thus be good for the economy. I don't, I don't buy his theory, but at least he sort of had a theory behind his tax increases. Obama is really a sharp break from that. Obama is just increasing taxes to get more money for more spending. It's not based on any kind of economic theory. And Obama wants, is raising taxes, and in my view, he completely ignores the damage to the long-run economy. Let me just go through a couple examples, and I'll hand, hand over the podium to Congressman, uh, Congressman Ryan. President Obama raises the top personal income tax rate substantially. Uh, so right now, uh, if you take state taxes uh, into account, uh, the top personal income tax rate in the United States is about 41%. Obama would raise that to about 46%. You know, the average top personal income tax rate in the 30 major industrial countries is 43%. So after 2011, the United States would be in this uh, strange position for a, a free market economy that our, our top personal income tax rate will be substantially higher than the average of other uh, industrial countries. So the, the economic lessons learned uh, by all the major industrial countries in lowering their personal income tax rates over the years is being completely ignored by the Obama administration. Corporate tax rates. President Obama increases uh, corporate taxes substantially by broadening the corporate tax base, but he has no corporate tax rate cut. At least Charlie Rangel in the House, uh, he, he would have substantial uh, uh, measures to broaden the corporate tax uh, rate, but he wants to use uh, the, the broaden the corporate tax base, but he wants to use the extra revenues to lower the corporate tax rate. So there's economic thinking behind Rangel's plan, but no economic thinking behind the Obama plan. He simply wants to broaden the corporate tax base to raise more money and to do more spending. 
Uh, and again, there's many other examples of this in the Obama administration budget. He wants to, uh, for example, uh, increase taxes on, on all businesses by changing the inventory rules, by repealing the so-called uh, LIFO rules for inventory. Well, there's no economic thinking behind that. That would have a damaging economic effect by essentially taxing inflation uh, for, for businesses. Uh, again, the purpose just seems to be to raise money, and there's no economic thinking uh, involved there. A final note is that, uh, uh, you know, a big part of the Obama tax philosophy is to, is to redistribute resources uh, sort of from the rich, the rich to the poor. But there's two big uh, uh, tax increases on the poor that Obama uh, has supported so far. His climate change um, tax, uh, of course, uh, about $80 billion a year or about $7 billion or $700 for every household in the United States. Uh, and finally, uh, as an interesting note that's kind of been overlooked by the, uh, the media, uh, Obama's already passed a big increase in cigarette taxes. Cigarette, the price of his uh, cigarette uh, taxes goes from uh, 39 cents to $1.01 a pack uh, effective tomorrow. This was signed into law back in February. So that's a, a tax increase of hundreds of dollars on many uh, low-income Americans who are cigarette consumers. And so I'll conclude uh, just by, by noting that... Uh, the, the Obama fiscal policy is, is completely devoid of economic reasoning uh, and, and utterly ignores the negative impacts of his policies on long-run growth. And to underscore that point, Obama has appointed a, a task force to look at tax reform issues and to report by uh, December. And there's three goals of this task force, to, uh, to close loopholes, to reduce corporate welfare, and to combat tax evasion. Well, what about economic growth? I can hardly imagine a tax reform commission, I don't even know whether there's ever been a tax reform commission that has not looked at economic growth and tax simplification. So Obama, uh, the Obama administration is completely ignoring the issue of long-run growth. Uh, and with that, I'm going to pass the podium to uh, Congressman Paul Ryan, who uh, uh, thanks a lot for coming, uh, uh, Congressman. Uh, Paul is the uh, ranking member on the House Budget Committee. Uh, he's a real uh, leader on fiscal responsibility. And the, the difference uh, with Congressman Ryan and uh, most members of Congress is he really deeply understands tax and spending issues, and he proposes major reforms uh, of government. So we're delighted to have you yeah, here, thanks, and thanks for dropping by. If you haven't read this book, you should. The book by... Chris Edwards and Dan Mitchell. And if you go to page 46 and 47, you will see that America is slipping in worldwide competition. That America is behind the curve when it comes to the way we tax our businesses and our companies and we are losing jobs because of it. And now when you take a look at the president's budget, he is not proposing to make us more competitive. He's not proposing to make it more attractive for businesses to stay in America, to create jobs and build things and export them. He's proposing to go in a completely different direction. Much higher taxes, much less competition. He's gonna, here's the problem. When our competitors tax their employers a lot less than we tax ours, what do you think happens? We lose jobs. We lose competitiveness. This is the global economy now. Whether you like it or not, we are in the 21st century global economy. And it matters what the incentives are for the kinds of businesses we want to keep and attract to grow jobs in America. And so if you take a look at the Obama budget, it basically does one thing. It chases ever higher spending with ever higher taxes, and the two never actually catch up with one another, and therefore it creates an unprecedented amount of borrowing. If you wanted to be honest, 
the tax increases in the Obama budget would have to be more than double what they are already proposing. And so if you take a look at what fiscal situation we're in right now, it's a tough one. The president inherited a very dire fiscal situation. The nation is in a very dire fiscal crisis. So the question is, what do you do about it going forward? We think the wrong answer is to have a new gusher of spending, a new gusher of taxes, and a new gusher of borrowing. We think we ought to go in a different direction. We think we ought to contain and control and cut spending. We think we ought to get our deficits down, not up. We think we need to contain our borrowing, and we think we need to reform government. We need to reform the way we spend. We need to reform our entitlement programs, and we need to reform our tax system so that we can lead in the global economy, not be following in the global economy. I really honestly believe that the next four or five years are really going to define what America is to become in the 21st century. This budget is the most is the largest sea-changing budget uh, we have seen. And what people tease me around here, I've been reading federal budgets since I was 22 years old, which is kind of a sick thing to acknowledge, but I've never seen anything ever like this. This budget really does propose a completely different kind of a pathway for America. This budget does propose to bring us toward a European style and form of government. Now, in one way that's unfair. It's unfair to Europe. Because the kinds of taxing, the kinds of borrowing that are being proposed in this budget even surpasses their levels. You'll see at the G20, the Europeans are saying, oh, slow down, don't do all of this borrowing, we're not going to do this. Problem we're having is, that who is going to buy all of our bonds at the end of the day? And especially if the credit markets don't see that we're ever going to get this under control, we're going to have some serious problems. We're going to have currency problems, we're going to have problems with respect to our borrowing costs, and at the end of the day, the question is this. Are we going to maintain or sever the American legacy? And what is the American legacy? Every generation takes on the challenges that confront it within that generation, fixes those challenges so the next generation is better off. I really sincerely believe that if this budget actually comes to pass, if the policies produced in this budget occur, we will sever, sever that le American legacy. We will be consigning the next generation to an inferior standard of living. Just looking at what this budget proposes, just looking at the reforms that it lacks and the spending that it proposes, my three children who are four, five, and seven years old will for sure receive an inferior standard of living. The size of our government will grow such that when they are my age, they will have to pay at least double the amount of taxes we pay today just to keep this current government afloat. Instead of reforming entitlements, the president is proposing to create brand new ones. Instead of controlling spending, the president is proposing to have a gusher of new spending. Instead of controlling taxes, reforming our tax system, he's proposing to dramatically raise them. And at the end of the day, this tidal wave of red ink is something that just cannot be sustained. And so we say this is not inevitable. These kinds of deficits, debt, taxes, and borrowing is not necessary. The problem we have right now is the other side is basically saying we are the only solution. They're going to use the intimidation tactics of fear and envy. Class warfare is alive in America today, but it is not an American thing. Pitting people against each other is not what America is all about. If you take a look at the root philosophical underpinnings of this rhetorical onslaught behind this unprecedented growth of government, it is basically this. The American people 
should be comfortable because they're going to be stuck in their current station in life and we need to grow government to help them cope with it. That's not what America is about. That's not who we are. That's not what we want to have. We want people to advance their station in life. We want people to be able to reach their potential, reach their prosperity, and move up through the ranks. And in order to do that, you have to have a government that's limited. You have to have freedom and liberty as your guiding principles. You have to reapply those enduring first principles of this country to the problems of the day in order to solve those problems so that this century is yet again another great American century. I am going to say one thing that I'm told is very controversial, at least here in Washington. I think America is an exceptional nation. People tell me that's controversial. I don't think it is. And so why on earth would we want to dig ourselves into the kind of hole that Europe right now is trying to dig itself out of? Our friends in Europe are already telling us, don't do this, learn from our mistakes. If we know that these path, this pathway doesn't work, if we know that it creates economic stagnation, lower standards of living, higher unemployment, why on earth would we want to do that? And that is why you're going to see a robust opposition to the president's budget. That is why tomorrow you'll see us release our budget, which proposes to go in a completely different direction so that we actually can revive the prosperity that we've had and enjoyed in this country and can take care of these fiscal problems under our watch, not pass them on to the next generation. Thank you. Just a couple questions, Jeff. I'll, uh, I'll uh, start with a, a quick question and sort of wonky. Uh, budget reconciliation. Uh, the, the, the House uh, passed version of the, or I guess the House Budget Committee passed version of the, the, uh, the budget includes uh, reconciliation. Uh, can you sort of describe what, yeah. uh, what that means? And, uh, 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 you know, my understanding is that that would mean that in the years beyond the end of the, I guess, five-year budget resolution, uh, if, you, if you use that procedure for health care, would it mean that the out years uh, in, the, in a health care uh, uh, reform package would have to be offset by yes. the uh, tax hike? So, uh, well, that's the bird rule that, in combination with the, with the reconciliation. Here's what's really interesting about this. We just had the markup here last week in this room. The House, reconciliation doesn't really matter to the House because we have the Rules Committee and they can pretty much jam whatever they want. Where reconciliation matters is in the Senate, which means you can't filibuster it, you limit debate, limit amendments. The Senate, in order to pass their budget resolution, includes no reconciliation. Uh, Kent Conrad had to do that in order to get some um, centrist Democrat votes. So what happened? The House put reconciliation here, and the House reconciliation goes in the major three areas, ways and means, education, labor, and energy and commerce. And the way reconciliation works is, so long, as, so long as you have $1 worth of reconciliation instructions to a committee of jurisdiction, they can do whatever they want with that. So what is the jurisdiction of the Energy and Commerce Committee? Cap and trade and health care. What is the jurisdiction of the Ways and Means Committee? Taxes and health care. What is the jurisdiction of the Education and Labor Committee? Uh, education, obviously, and the student loan programs and all these new entitlements in, students, in education they want to propose. So the real question is, why would you put reconciliation in the House if it doesn't really matter to the House, not in the Senate? It seems to me like it's sort of a hide-the-ball kind of a scheme, which is have it in the House so you can go to conference, get this thing out of the Senate, and then voila, reconciliation occurs in the conference report, and therefore you have it there if you need it. As far as health care is concerned, um, they're going to have to raise enough revenues through some new tax or some new scheme in order to pay for their new money that they want uh, for health care. We already spend, we're already proposing to spend, uh, we already will be spending $4.5 trillion on health care over the next 10 years for people under the age of 65. We spend two and a half times per person compared to other industrialized nations on health care. 
Throwing more money isn't the problem. It's the way our healthcare system works or doesn't work is the problem. You guys have all written about this so much. But yes, so reconciliation, they're going to have to have the revenues meet their expenditures. And the bird rule will, would allow that to be sunset if outside of the window if they don't do that, if they don't reconcile those two. I've got, yeah, I apologize. I have to be somewhere at 1030. Yeah. For all of your ideas, which I agree with, the problem is that we don't have the votes to stop what they're doing. Right. So we Republicans don't have the votes in and of ourselves. What we're trying to do is reach out to our, our friends who call themselves Blue Dog Democrats. Uh, we used to, we used to, we had this rule now, you can't put um, things out in front of your office, you know, like these charts and posters, I don't know, it got carried away, so we banned that, you know. And so, but until about a year ago, out front of every Blue Dog Democrat's office, and there's like 50 Blue Dogs, they had this national debt chart that said, here's the national debt and here's your share. They, they campaigned for Congress saying, I'm a conservative Democrat and I'm worried about all this borrowing that's going on in the federal government. If they believe that, if they want to be sincere to their words, to their constituents, then would they vote for a budget that proposes to add more to the debt than all prior presidents combined? So we are trying to make a plea to the blue dogs. It is in your hands. It is in your control. The blue dog Democrats who call themselves that... They can stop this. They have the votes to join with us to stop this train wreck, to stop this fiscal policy. And if we defeat this budget, then we can go back to the drawing board and get something better. So it is really up to those people who call themselves Blue Dog Democrats. They can stop this budget if they want to. The question is whether they're going to march in lockstep with a Democratic majority or not. I don't know the answer to that. We'll find out Thursday. I apologize, but I've already got to get going, so it's at a 10.30. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Well, thank you, Congressman Ryan. Uh, we're going to move forward with our next speaker. Uh, Mike Tanner is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. He's an expert on health care issues uh, as well as Social Security. In fact, he was named by, uh, by CQ as one of the most influential uh, folks in, uh, in Washington, D.C. on Social Security. Uh, he's also addressed budget issues and a number of other issues, and he's authored an excellent book called uh, Healthy Competition, which I think is, is one of the best books on health care I've ever read. With that, Mike Tanner. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, I know it's, it's been fun for people to say, you know, where were all you critics of excessive government spending back when the Bush administration was doing excessive government spending? I think uh, the Cato Institute's one of the organizations that you can't make that claim about. Uh, I know Chris certainly has, uh, has taken a lead on criticizing things back in the Bush administration. I wrote a book called Leviathan on the Right uh, about the Bush brand of big government conservatism. And I actually have to say, when, I, when uh, President Obama was running as a candidate and after he took office, I actually had some fairly high hopes uh, about some of the things he was saying. He was one of the few Democrats who seemed legitimately willing to take on entitlement costs. Uh, back during the campaign at a time when Hillary Clinton, for example, was saying that, we sh that Democrats should not even talk about Social Security reform, uh, then-candidate Obama said very clearly that Social Security was unsustainable on its current course and that some form of reform would have to take place. Uh, after he got in office, he continued to say that there were serious problems with Social Security, which really uh, had gone into one of the fundamental tenets of his own party, which is the idea that there's nothing wrong with Social Security that repealing the Bush tax cuts wouldn't solve. Uh, he called together this fiscal responsibility summit uh, that was supposed to take a hard look at entitlements, and I was really uh, encouraged. 
Unfortunately, he seems to have backed off of that. Uh, the Fiscal Responsibility Summit actually uh, did not take up the issue of Social Security reportedly after Nancy Pelosi and some others complained about the issue being going forward. Uh, if you look at the budget uh, that the Obama administration has put forward, it does nothing in terms of reforming entitlements, in particular Social Security. Uh, this becomes all the more important in light of some of the new Social Security numbers that are coming out. The CBO is uh, releasing some new figures on Social Security. We'll see them probably reflected in the trustees' report coming up. Uh, as you may know, Social Security uh, is currently running a surplus. That surplus was originally projected to be in the 80 to $90 billion range next year and the year following. And it would Social Security would continue to run a surplus until about 2017, at which point it would go into deficit. Unfortunately, because of the increase in unemployment and the reduction in tax revenues, that surplus is now almost gone. Uh, according to the figures that uh, will surely be released, uh, the budget for next year is now projected to be about $16 billion instead of 80 to $90 billion. And in 2010, I'm sorry, that's for this year, and in 2010 it's expected to be $3 billion, virtually uh, a rounding error. Uh, so it's actually the Social Security system is actually projected to go into deficit not in 2017 but in 2011. Just two years from now, Social Security will begin to run a deficit, spending more on benefits than it takes in in revenue. And while CBO says that if we get out of our current economic uh, slump, there may be a couple of years somewhere between 2011 and 2017 in which you get a little bump up above the line again, uh, we will never again know the Social Security surplus, which we've known in the past, and the Social Security system will be in much more severe uh, difficulty than it was previously projected. Uh, and yet there is no effort, uh, evidence that the administration is addressing this. My second big problem is, of course, in the health care area, where the administration is actually proposing to create a new entitlement uh, to health care. Uh, the number you hear a lot, the $600 and a quarter uh, billion dollars that they've put in the, the budget as a placeholder, uh, has always been referred to as a down payment. That is, they've never really said that this health care reform plan is going to cost $600 billion. Uh, they just said we're putting some money in there sort of as a hold, to hold the place for what will ultimately be the cost. Uh, both administration and congressional officials are now telling uh, people that they're projecting numbers in the range of $1.5 to $1.7 trillion for health care reform over the next 10 years rather than the $600 billion. So... Uh, let's say somewhere around uh, three times as much. Uh, I would just point out when we look at those numbers at all that historically almost always projections for government health care pro uh, programs have been underestimated uh, initially. Just to give you a couple of ideas, back in 1965 when they started Medicare, uh, they projected that uh, by 1990 they said Medicare Part A costs would be all of $9 billion dollars. Uh, that was the original CBO estimate. Uh, actually, in 1990, it was $67 billion. So they missed that just a little bit by about seven times. Uh, in 1987, uh, they put in a subsidy for Medicaid special hospitals. Uh, they said it would, by 1992, it cost around $100 million. Uh, that was just five years uh, projected in the future. In actuality, it cost $11 billion. So they might have missed that one. 
1988, they did Medicare home care. Uh, they projected that by 1993, it would cost $4 billion annually. The reality was it cost $10 billion annually. So they've missed uh, on almost all their health care projections uh, in the past. Uh, if you apply those misses uh, on the $1.7 trillion going forward, you can expect this will cost three, four, five, ten trillion dollars over the next ten years. Uh, who knows how much? Uh, certainly, I wouldn't put a lot of faith in the 1.7 trillion. And you're establishing it. If you establish this as an entitlement, it will basically go on autopilot, and you will have these cost increases built in the same way we do now with the Medicare program, the Medicaid program, the, the uh, Social Security program, and so on going forward. And finally, I would just express one last concern in the budgeting going forward, and that is in the whole area of welfare. Uh, one of the provisions of the stimulus bill that was not discussed a great deal undid uh, large portions of the 1998 uh, Welfare Reform Act. Uh, those provisions essentially did away with the entitlement status of welfare and created a, uh, a, a block grant to the states. And that block grant was done in a way that was designed to encourage states to reduce their welfare rolls. Uh, the stimulus bill included a $5 billion uh, slush fund that states could use to increase their uh, welfare rolls beyond what they currently have. And it did away with a number of the restrictions. It, it basically did away with the incentives to reduce the rolls. Uh, it, it basically said that... Under the old bill, if you, you had a certain amount of money, if you cut back on the number of people on welfare, you had that same amount of money and you could spend more money on welfare for the people you had on your rolls. The incentives were all to reduce the number of people. This new uh, bill says if you increase the number of people on welfare, we will give you more money for your state. And it says it doesn't matter why you increase that, no, the more people on welfare. It's, if it's because you have a bad economy, fine. But if it's because you did away with your work requirements or you did away with your time limits, that's fine too. So the incentives are to make, do away with a lot of the welfare reforms that were put in place uh, and to begin moving welfare back towards the entitlement status it once held. Uh, and if that's the case, we will see dramatic increases in welfare spending in the out years of these budgets. For all these reasons, I, I think that my original hopes that we were actually going to move away from the, the fiscal profligacy of the uh, Bush administration towards an administration that actually meant what it said when it said it wanted to have a new type of politics in Washington, I've been severely disappointed. Uh, and it looks to me like all we're doing is having a massive shift in the type of spending we're doing. We're increasing spending, and then we're shifting a lot of that spending into the social welfare areas uh, of spending, and I think that that's a recipe for uh, the Europeanization of the U.S. and uh, and a disaster for the economy in the future. With that, thank you very much. <laughs>